I do like being right. <laughs> Ask my ex-husband. Happens every time. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Boris Dirk podcast. Tonight, it is a solo episode. Drew is unable to attend. But though I am unable to physically perform basketball, I am always physically able to talk basketball. So I wanted to quickly check in about a historic Game 7 between Sacramento and Golden State, and then the two other Game 1s from Round 2 that we saw this weekend. But there's no place we can start besides Steph Curry's 50-point masterpiece in Game 7 of Kings Warriors. I think big picture perspective where, you know, to start from a bird's eye view, I immediately started thinking about what are the best games of Steph Curry's career and where does this rank among them? From a volume perspective, this is the most he's ever scored in a postseason game. So that automatically vaulted pretty high up the list. And then when you factor in the fact that it was in a game seven on the road in a performance that if they had lost this game, may have led to the end of their team as we knew it. That has to count for something from a from a narrative and big picture perspective. And then when you factor in the fact that no one else in the team from an offensive standpoint really had it going, um, that just adds even more to it. Clay had a horrible shooting night. He was one of 10 at one point. Poole didn't have anything going, and Kerr, Coach Kerr kind of went away from him in the second half. Um, Wiggins was able to get some things going defensively, but offensively he was missing layups. He was missing threes. Steph was really the only one who had it going. And as a result, he took 38 shots, which it kind of reminds me of that Kawhi Leonard performance in game seven against the Sixers a few years ago, where he knew he was going to have to take upwards of 35 shots for them to win the game. That was the best offensive option. And he went out and did it. Unlike that one, it didn't come down to a last second shot that bounced five times on the rim. The Warriors were able to extend the lead in large part due to their defense and on that end you have to start with the front court Wiggins Looney and Draymond uh, going into this game I thought the Warriors would have to get back to their normal starting lineup that they'd played so much throughout the season with Curry Clay Andrew Wiggins Draymond Green and Kavon Looney and for the past few games of the series they'd started with Draymond on the bench and I thought, you know, that lineup had the best net rating in the NBA of any five-man lineup throughout the season. It seemed like in a do-or-die situation, they had to go back to it. And that's exactly what Steve Kerr did, starting with that lineup. And really, their D was their defense was on point early and throughout the game. Um, Sabonis had it going in the first half, but by the second half, Looney and Draymond were really able to bother him. And uh, I think they really started to get into Sabonis's head with, giving him the sort of leave him open treatment, the Andre Roberson treatment, just from the elbow, from the top of the key, they would let him shoot no matter what. And um, as the game went on, the the Warriors defense tightened and the Kings weren't able to to match particularly Steph's output. Um, on the Kings side, I thought Fox and Monk, you know, they were really so impressive this whole series, and, and tonight they just didn't have it going as much. Um, Fox was trying, but I think you could tell that finger was bothering him throughout the game. He was mishandling the ball in some plays. Um, and, you know, this was the first real game. Game sevens are different. And when, when Fox and all the Sacramento Kings were in this environment, I think it was – I mean, the atmosphere was crazy. Um, 
the cowbells were popping. I don't know why every arena in the NBA doesn't have cowbells because the you could hear the din through the TV. But I just thought the, the Kings in the first half, they were able to answer all the punches. But in the second half, the Warriors kind of championship medal showed uh, shown through and every deep three that Steph would hit, you could just feel the air gradually get, get sucked out of the building. Um, you know, in the first half, the Kings were throwing the ball, you know, the ball was really popping around the half court for them. Uh, I thought they got a lot of high quality looks. I thought in general, the shots they were getting in the first half were better than the shots that golden state was getting, but that's the difference when you have a superstar player is he can make those tough shots. He can, he can survive and thrive on a, on a tough shot diet compared to, you know, most players who, who need space and, and flow in the offense to, to really get going. Um, but all that said, as far as where this game ranks among Steph's best, I think game four of the 2022 finals against the Celtics probably still has the top spot just because it, it was down two one in a final series on the road in Boston against at the, the best defense in the NBA last year. And he just put the whole Warriors team on his back and was able to tie it up at two, two going back to golden state. And if they had lost that game, they probably wouldn't have won the finals going down three, one and having to win three in a row against that Boston team. Um, so I'd probably put that one at the top, just degree of difficulty wise today. I think is up there. I think the the top three of his games are that Boston one, his 50 today, and then his game six against the Rockets a few years ago, the game after KD got hurt and Steph had zero points in the first half, I believe, and then 30 in the second half to knock out Houston in what may have been their best chance to get to the finals in those hardened Chris Paul years. So yeah, that's about it. The Warriors are moving on to the to the second round to play against the Lakers. Uh, that's going to be an incredible series. I know Drew and I are going to preview that early this week. Um, just to to get the chance to see Steph and LeBron again uh, is awesome. And in the second round of the playoffs, no less, may set records for for viewership in the second round of a of an NBA playoffs. Uh, and the last thing I want to say about Steph is just. Um, he just continues to get better. Like the amount of strength that he's added to his frame and everyone talks about this, but if you go back and watch some of those highlights from the 2015, 2016 finals, he just looks at physically, he's so much different. And now with that added strength, he has, he's getting a ton of rebounds. He was getting contested rebounds. Um, he was driving into the paint and, you know, he's always been an underrated finisher, but he was finishing over everyone today. Um, He's just, what more can you say? And with as much as I hate to say it, because I love Giannis, but if Steph leads this Warriors team on another run to the finals, it's going to be hard to deny that that he's the best player in the NBA. Um, I'm not quite ready to go there yet. I have to see how the rest of this playoffs plays out. But it's definitely on the table. It's definitely on the table. Last thing I want to say about that game is Kevon Looney was just incredible rebounding the ball. I thought if Steph broke the spirit of the Kings in their crowd. I think uh, Looney, to quote the Dark Knight Rises, uh, broke their body. Um, he had over 20 rebounds. He was Every time there was a ball up in the air that it was like a 50-50 ball between Sabonis and Looney, it seemed like Looney was getting it nine times out of 10 or eight times out of 10. Wiggins was helpful there too, but Looney just put in a rebounding performance. 
for the ages, uh, and he deserves a shout-out. And he's going to have his hands full next series with Anthony Davis. I'm very curious to see how that goes. All right, moving on to the other game today, Miami-New York. I'm going to try to be as objective as possible with this one as a Knicks fan. Um, but what really stood out is the, the two biggest things in this series may be Jimmy Butler's ankle and Julius Randle's ankle. Um, Jimmy Butler rolled his ankle towards the end of the game. He really wasn't moving very well after it. I thought the Knicks should have gone after him on defense a little bit more to, to try to test that ankle, but they didn't really. And just going to have to see how it responds over the next few days because it looked like he rolled it pretty bad. On the Knicks side, they're going to need Julius Randle to, to win this series, I think. Um, they don't necessarily need him back by game two, but I think by game three, if Julius Randle's not back, it's going to be tough for the Knicks to win this series. The Heat strategy right now is just to throw a ton of bodies at Brunson. I was curious to see when they would put Jimmy Butler on him. And on the opening possession, they had him on him. And throughout the game, Butler would be on him periodically. But then they also tried some Caleb Martin on him. He got a lot of look. And whenever Brunson was getting into the paint, he was seeing multiple bodies. It was Martin and then Bam shading over to him, Kevin Love shading over to him. And the Heat were just daring the rest of the Knicks to be able to beat them from the outside, whether that was Obi Toppin, Josh Hart, R.J. Barrett. And while R.J. Barrett did have a great game driving to the hoop, particularly in the first half, he cooled off in the second half. And I thought his decision-making also got worse in the second half. But um, every time Brunson got into the lane, he just he saw a ton of bodies and he wasn't really able to, to get comfortable. One-on-one, um, -on -one, he was able to get by anyone who wasn't named Jimmy Butler, but if Julius Randle's not in the game, the Heat have kind of impunity to, to help off of everyone and really just focus all the defensive attention on Brunson. And either the Knicks need Julius Randle or they need someone else on the team to be able to loosen that up for him. Uh, because no one, I mean, the Knicks were, I think they shot 20% from three today. They were in the 20s from three, which isn't going to be enough. And then on the other end, um, the Knicks aren't going to win if they lose or if they're shooting the same number of shots as the Heat or any playoff opponent for that matter. They're not going to win the game. They have to consistently and by a decent margin win the win the possession battle. They have to get significantly more rebounds than the other team. They have to they have to avoid turning the ball over. And today, I think the Knicks and the Heat took roughly the same number of shots. Uh, if they want to win, they're going to have to particularly limit their own turnovers and then also try to crash the offensive glass a little bit more. And that's an area where I also think that Julius Randle's presence would help. Um, on the heat side, uh, Jimmy honestly had a game where he, it was kind of like a regular season, Jimmy game. He kind of just scored in the flow of the game uh, off of cuts, a few pull up jumpers and kind of tough shots, but mostly off of cutting some putbacks in transition. Uh, there was a sequence in the third quarter where Kevin Love threw him a few outlets in a row and that really kind of broke the game open and the Knicks weren't able to get it back from there. But, you know, the Heat were able to win without him having sort of a transcendent game. And I think that should definitely concern the Knicks a little bit. And then the other key player for the Heat was Kyle Lowry, uh, him and Gabe Vincent both. But Kyle Lowry, it felt like through the first three quarters when the Knicks had the lead, every time that they would be on the verge of, you know, a fast break to extend the lead from 10 to 12 and really get the building into it, or, you know, an offensive rebound, 
he would just get his hand in and get a little strip, get a block, um, you know, pick up a pick up a charge. There was a possession late in the game where Mitch Mitchell Robinson got the rebound. The Knicks were down three, and they were getting ready to push, and he brought the ball down, and Kyle Lowry stole it from him. And the Heat got a bucket out of that, and the Knicks never really had a shot after that play. Um, it was a it was a pretty vintage Kyle Lowry game. As a Knicks fan, <laughs> I would qualify him as a pest, um, but I'm sure you know it, it was objectively it was it was cool to see that guys like him and Kevin Love are still able to contribute to winning basketball at this stage of their careers. As a Knicks fan it's really frustrating to lose to Miami because you see all these guys who you don't think should still be having this much impact at this stage in their careers, whether they're guys who seem a little over the hill like Kyle Lowry and Kevin Love, or they're guys who just seem like if they weren't sprinkled with the Eric Spolstra sort of magic dust, they wouldn't be the players that they are, whether that's Gabe Vincent or, you know, Duncan Robinson, um, Max Struess. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Those guys are good players, but, uh, it just seems like something about Miami. They they're really good at developing these these unknown guys into into real players. So going forward in that series, I think the Knicks are going to come out really motivated in Game Two. That's pretty much a must-win game for them if they go down 0-2 going to Miami. That's uh, going to be a really difficult hole to climb out of. I think they can. Um, they've got to shoot a little bit better. They've got to crash the rebounds a little bit more. Another concerning thing coming out of the game is Mitchell Robinson. Seems like he was he got pretty banged up over the course of the game. So they're going to have to see how he how he progresses over the next few days. But yeah, it's it's going to be a long, tough, drag it out series. Both these teams are super physical. The Knicks aren't going to be able to bully Miami physic uh, mentally like they did the Cavs. But they do still, particularly if Randall comes back, they do still have a decided size advantage that should be that they should be able to to profit off of. All right, and finally, I want to talk about Game One of Suns Nuggets, which almost looked like a completely different sport from Miami New York the next day. But on Saturday, Nuggets beat the Suns by a wide margin, I think by twenty, and there was just so much offense. Uh, to start that game. Um, both teams came out super hot. Phoenix was hitting all their pull-up jumpers and getting to the basket. Denver had their sort of uh, pick-and-roll machine whirring between Murray and Jokic and then other guys spacing around that. Uh, I thought the Nuggets could have been up more early in the game. They missed a lot of Point Blake looks and layups. But as the game went on, they were really able to wear Phoenix down defensively and their offense really just has no holes in it. Like you have the Jokic Murray pick and roll. And if you sell out to stop that, you're leaving open looks for KCP, who's a very good shooter, Michael Porter, who's an absolute sniper, or Aaron Gordon, who's back cutting for dunks and things like that. And if you let them play two on two in the Jokic Murray pick and roll, those guys are going to go off. Murray had a great game. Um, he was hitting all of his little one foot jumpers, his mid range fadeaways. And Jokic didn't even he didn't even have to score that much, but that Nuggets machine when it's really going is just is so difficult to stop. And the Suns have a lot of offensive talent, but or they have KD and Booker who are great scoring talents. But aside from that, they're going to have to make a ton of much more difficult shots to be able to keep up with the Nuggets. And that's why going into the series, I picked the Nuggets to win in six games, and. 
I think, uh, you know, I definitely expect Phoenix to bounce back. I don't think they'd really played a team of that level since Kevin Durant's got there. All the games they played in the regular season were against, you know, pretty low competition. And then in the playoffs, they had a few games against a, a Clippers team with Kawhi, but most of the games were against a Clippers team that was missing their two best guys. And it was just the Russell Westbrook show. So it's going to take them a bit to adjust to the, the higher level of competition that they're getting in this series. One thing that I thought was interesting rotationally was the Nuggets didn't use a backup center. They just played Aaron Gordon and Jeff Green, basically, as the as the bigs when Jokic was off the floor. Um, and I think that's a good strategy. I don't think the Suns are equipped to really punish that. Um, and, you know, as the series goes on, Jokic is going to play huge minutes. I thought it was pretty big that Denver was able to increase the, the margin that they were up with Jokic out, Aaron Gordon, I thought had a fantastic game. Uh, he was, you know, getting cuts, um, playing pretty good defense on KD, I thought. And he didn't miss a shot for the first few quarters. I think he started like seven of seven or eight for eight. And yeah, when they're at home and they've got, they're out getting out in transition, that Phoenix is going to have to limit turnovers because especially at altitude and that Nuggets environment, it's just when, when they really get going, it's hard to stop. And last thing on that game is total silent night from Chris Paul. Um, this is what I worried about a bit with the Suns is they really only have four guys who you know you can trust in the playoff series. And of those four, you can only really, really trust two in Booker and KD. And then Aiton and Chris Paul kind of sometimes take turns being guys you can trust. Uh, you know, Chris Paul, historically you can, but at this point in his career, he's uh, kind of a defensive liability, particularly against this Nuggets team. If if everyone's running around and they're trying to navigate switches and suddenly Chris Paul's on Michael Porter Jr., that's a mismatch. Or if Chris Paul's on Aaron Gordon, he can overpower him. If he's on Jokic, obviously it's a mismatch. And even against Jamal Murray, he he doesn't quite have the foot speed that he had early in his career to be able to keep up with him and really bother him. So... I'm going to be curious to see how CP does in the series. He's he's going to have to get going offensively because I think defensively uh, he's just kind of drawing dead. But it's it's a tough it's going to be a a tough matchup for for Phoenix to be able to keep up, and it's going to come down to can KD and Booker be uh, sort of transcendent superstars in the in the way that we've seen them be before. So that's about it. Uh, I'm going to cut it off there. Uh, I'll be back with Drew early this week to talk about round two, maybe give our picks for the series that are coming up and yeah. Peace everyone.